Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Christopher O'Donnell, the SVP of product at HubSpot. So HubSpot is an inbound marketing software platform. It helps companies attract visitors, convert leads, and close customers. On Product Love, Christopher and I discussed a startup within a startup approach that HubSpot has used. So I'm really intrigued by the idea of having entrepreneurs in organizations within the main company, right? Where they take on a similar to a CEO-like role. Christopher explained that organizations inside were separate to the point where they had a different brand and tech stack. These small startups moved quickly enough to be practically building features while they're on the phone with customers. This speed naturally led to a lot of pain around rewriting things as well as incurring a good bit of debt. But ultimately, they got to be very innovative and move at the speed they wanted. So this all got me to thinking, should companies be doing this? Would having startups operate within startups change the pace of the organization? Would it help them grow new products into product market fit? Would it help them develop their product teams in different ways as well? Christopher is a big proponent of trying it. And I know several other companies like Wix who have also talked about and done this. I think kicking off a startup within a startup especially when you're entering new markets and don't want that initial innovation to be overly constrained, right, by your core company metrics, well, that startup within a startup could be something that really could work. What are your thoughts? What's stopping you from trying this? Shoot me a note on how you and your product team work. You can reach me at eBodic on Twitter or eBodic at pendo.io. Thanks. So welcome, lovers of product. Today I'm here with Christopher O'Donnell. Chris, why don't you give us a little bit of your background to kick this off? Nice to be here. Thank you for having me, Eric. Yeah, my name is Chris O'Donnell. I'm the SVP of product at HubSpot. We're a public SaaS company, and we make marketing, sales, and service software, sort of collectively we think of as CRM software. My background in particular is actually in music and also in technology, and I found my way from making records to working as a marketer to eventually working in product and did some startup stuff and then wound up being a part of the HubSpot team about seven and a half years ago. So I've been there for a long, long time. And I I run the product team as of today, which is a great honor, a hard job and a great opportunity for me to learn. So tell me a little bit about that, why you pick computers and music to study or tech and music to be involved in. And a lot of people categorize themselves as right-brained or left-brained How do you see yourself? Are you inclined to something more? That's a great question. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, you know, if you ask my parents for for an image of me, they're going to talk about, you know, a seven-year-old Christopher in the corner of the basement with a glue gun, gluing his fingers together and trying to make stuff, you know, and and that's kind of where I'm coming from is I just love making making things. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the creative process of making really anything. And that brought me to technology pretty early. I started kind of coding and building products when I was 11 started to get into web development in uh, 1994. I took my first front-end web development class. Wow. So, so yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how I got into it, but I got into it like literally the classes were how to put the blank tag on your GeoCity site, you know, and that kind of thing. So 
I started. I actually that. remember it well. I was uh, at Carnegie Mellon then, so was also doing some Java in say ninety five, you know ninety six, right? Wow, wow, that is very legit, very old school. Yeah, and you know, I got into uh, a program that did technology, sort of the fusion of technology and music, and then worked in music, making websites and web products on the side. And then, you know, I kind of found out that there was this whole software industry, and particularly this this web hosted software as a service kind of model, and ended up falling into that. And I'll tell you that the thing about it that I've always found really interesting is the job of working in the recording studio, which I still do. I have a band called The Providers. We're making a record. Sort of selfish plug there, but uh, watch out for that, the, theproviders.com. And the, the process of making a record is so, so incredibly similar to the process of building a SaaS product in terms of just trying to balance the human side and the technology limitations and drawing from inspiration and seeing what connects with people and moves people and and just, you know, just the creative process, man. You know, I mean, just iterating on things and showing people ideas and getting feedback and trying to take great ideas and put them together. So for me, the two are actually, it's really the same thing. It's the creative process. And I just love the creative process. And I'm, I'm lucky to have found SaaS because it's very rewarding. It's very fast. I'm sort of an impatient person. And so it's fun to work in that kind of high-paced environment. But yeah, really very, very similar types of roles, producing a record and, and making a product. So talk to me specifically about how you got started in product management. How did that process take place? Yeah. And, you know, I, I love to ask this question too. Anybody who works in products, I always want to learn how they got in. In my experience, I'm, I'm in the majority, which is people who kind of backed into it through some happenstance. I call it coming in through the bathroom window. You know, I was uh, a marketer. I was kind of the, the HubSpot target customer. That was my first job. I got a, a cubicle and a laptop and free coffee, you know, and a job doing web analytics and e-commerce management and running campaigns and stuff. And I really loved it and had over the course of my time there, more and more product input and ideas about what to do with the product. And my interests sort of gravitated away from the marketing stuff, which, which I still love, but really gravitated toward working with the engineers. And I got a chance to run product at the company where I was. We were making language learning software, mostly for the military intelligence community. And, you know, I was very passionate about the mission, got very drawn into the, the product development lifecycle. And CEO took me for a walk around the building one day and said, hey, you know, look, I'm going to give you a shot to do this. And, you know, that was, that was kind of my break. I learned a lot doing that. And I did a lot of hacking on the side, a lot of side projects, little kind of web apps and, and things I'd show my friends and iterate on. And, you know, just found that I loved, loved the process. From there, I ended up working for a fellow named David Cancel at a company called Performable, where I was director of product, where I actually, my first day, I started resolving my own support tickets that I had put in as a customer. I was the first paying customer of Performable. So... That was also a product I was very passionate about. And then we were acquired by HubSpot. And that's sort of the, the quick 90-second version of how I got into products. And the bulk of my career has been as a product manager and then, you know, team lead at HubSpot. You know, it's interesting. Two things I wanted to talk about. One, you know, first, the back door. You know, it, it seems like people that have been involved in product longer, a lot of us have come into product, became product managers through the back door, either through you know, engineering, through marketing, even and sometimes through, you know, sales, as opposed to starting in kind of the product space. But I'm starting to see now more and more people start in and around product. Like there's more people getting education, whether it's through pragmatic or product school, and even 
programs coming about, like CMU now has a master's in product management, which I, I think is really awesome. Oh, you do that really? too. I didn't know that. Oh, that's fascinating. I've said many times there's no degree in product management. And as of today, I can no longer say that because I'm, I'm now aware of that program. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I think they just went through their first cohort of students. So it's cohort number two that's just kicked off. But yeah, can get a master's degree and, and equivalent educational costs uh, in product <laughs> management. So, but I, I heard the program, I mean, it's Carnegie Mellon program. If you look at like their uh, user experience programs, those, those people are like five job offers before they're halfway through the program kind of thing. So I, oh, geez, I bet. same thing in product management. So yeah, it's really cool that they're doing that. Shout out to my alma mater for that. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the PMs on the HubSpot team have come internally from services or from marketing or from sales or, or other places within the company. We have a little bit of a peculiar way that we do product management. It's sort of hyper fast and, you know, we move very, very quickly and it's, it can be tough for people who have some experience in product management, but not a ton to acclimate to that. So we tend to hire either internally or external, very senior people, though we're starting to hire more mid-career people. HubSpot.com slash jobs, by the way, anybody wants to come check us out. Yeah, you know, everything that's old is new again, I suppose. We tend to think of SaaS as being very, very new in all of these roles and the role of account management and the role of user research and all of this stuff sort of taking new meaning every year, every couple of years in the industry. And on the other hand, you know, I'm reminded that, you know, geez, my grandfather actually was an outside field rep for IBM selling software and, and hardware solutions at that time. So a lot of these jobs have been around for a long time. Product management has been around, I would say, for a long time. The big, big difference is just the level to which a product manager today can be, in, in my opinion, customer-driven and customer-focused. When you can launch an experiment, you can launch a feature, you can launch a, a minimum viable product and get feedback from 5, 10, 20 people instantly, you know, in a B2C or a B2B context. That really changes things. You know, at HubSpot, we're going to production 400 times a day, you know, and so the feedback loop can be really almost immediate. And I, I do think that that's new. You know, it's very different from building a, you know, an automobile or bringing something to market the way that things were brought to market 50, 60 years ago. So I do think SaaS is new. I do think that this field of product management is a bit novel in some of what's required. The propensity to take risks, for example, the insane level of customer connection that's necessary to be successful in real time. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think the textbook on product management, particularly in, in SaaS is definitely still being written. Yeah, I think, I feel like things have moved a little bit from, you know, the art of product management, like it was to more of the craft of product management, maybe not quite the science of product management, but definitely the craft now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. We use the term trade craft a lot. And, you know, our team is as hungry as anybody is for real lessons and real same defaults or best practices or, you know, just stories of what people have tried. And there isn't really a, a Bible to go out and, and kind of read and, and draw from. So for us, as we build a product management culture, you know, we have a huge emphasis on facilitating the learning between the members of the team, because the lessons that we've learned over 12 years of building software at HubSpot are very valuable you know, and sort of sharing that between the product managers is extremely, extremely valuable. And then we also talk to companies that we look up to in terms of what are they learning, you know, companies that are maybe a little bit ahead of us. We talk to Slack a lot. We talk to Facebook. We talk to 
you know, Pendo, we talk to all kinds of companies, Atlassian, Jay Simons is on our board. And so we do, we do try to stand on the shoulders of giants and, and learn from what they have tried and tried in many cases in many different ways and draw from that experience as it relates to ours. Yeah. So let's go back to HubSpot a little bit. Tell me about how you co-founded the Sidekick team on HubSpot. Talk to me about that process and the experience. Yeah. Boy, that was a fascinating experience. Learned so much on that. The, the idea was to do a startup within a startup. And the context was basically we had a strong marketing product. We had good product market fit with our marketing product, some sense of the path to get from where we were at the time. So this was, let's say, heading into 2013. It was a while ago now. Wow. And dealing with the context of an IPO and having really a single product company that was in the early stages of market penetration. I had worked on the, the rewrite of that product. We sort of replatformed that starting in 2011. And I kind of gave my Legos away, as we like to say, I sort of gave the teams I was working on totally away to other PMs that we had, you know, that we brought onto the team. And in 2013, began the process of just building little web apps and building little experiences and trying to find some sort of fit with salespeople. And we were eyeing as a company, we were eyeing this next market, this sales market and CRM market and trying to find a novel way to go to market. And we had some sense we were going to build a CRM, but we were also seeing a lot of things happening in terms of tools that were being adopted by end users, in this case, sales reps, and then being adopted you know, very widely within an organization. And so we wanted to kind of go after that. We built a bunch of different things. We had a lot of things that we built internally for our sales reps and just tried a lot of different experiments and honed in on this idea of real-time notifications about what was happening with your prospects, with your target market, and what folks were doing. So built an initial prototype, and we set a $1 million run rate goal and grew the team pretty slowly. We grew the team pretty slowly for, I would say, about a year. And along that time, we were able to convince a couple of real luminary people that I had always and still just deeply, deeply look up to. Mark Roberge on the sales and go-to-market side and Brian Balfour on the growth side and were able to pull them on. And that really just accelerated the growth curve immensely and on a selfish level was an amazing experience trying to keep up with them. You know, it's like, like in music, if you're the best player in the band, it's time for a new band. And you know, I'm certainly far from the best player in, in the HubSpot band. And with folks like that working alongside them every day, it was really humbling to try to keep up with them and, and understand just how deep, you know, Mark's knowledge was on go-to-market and building a sales team. You know, we built a little independent sales team, started with one rep, a fellow named Mike Peachy, and grew that to about 20 reps before we folded the product into the main sales team. And just seeing how Mark thought about everything from the finance plan to productivity per rep and different growth models and the trade-offs around new price points and the relationship of new price points and retention and sort of all the lessons that he'd learned in that first chapter of HubSpot, that was just fascinating. And then on the other side, learning from Brian Balfour, the level of discipline and thoughtfulness and kind of ambition and playing to win that he brought to the table, his ability to hire spectacular people 
you know, he's he's moved on from HubSpot. He runs Reforge now, which I think everybody in the world is going through right now who wants to learn about growth. It's really sort of the place to learn about growth. And uh, we say at HubSpot, every few days, somebody makes a comment about how long a, a shadow he left there because we're still learning from both him and Mark. So, you know, it was fun from a product perspective. It was super interesting from a human perspective just to learn and be very interdisciplinary and not just be, you know, working on product. But that really was a stage that opened my eyes up to the relationship of product to marketing, to growth, to sales and go to market and in the intersection of those things, which frankly, up until that point in my career, you know, I had kind of focused on being very customer driven and swinging the hammer and building SaaS products without a detailed knowledge of everything else that was happening in the business. And, you know, I realized for myself in, in my career, I was going to really have to step up and go deeper in some of those areas. And so that was really, uh, really what we learned. But we got that to, you know, we blew through that goal and were able to scale the product pretty quickly and then folded, sort of acquired it by the main company and, and folded it in. And it exists today in a product line that we call HubSpot Sales. So it was just a fascinating chapter. That product line has done very well for us. We had a lot of skin knees along the way in terms of, you know, product and trying different things with the messaging and the go to market. But, you know, just very thankful for that whole chapter. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by this startup within a startup approach. I know Wix does it a lot, right? Has oh, little you know, entrepreneurs and, and organizations inside the main company, in essence, with their own CEOs. Is this something you'd recommend? What caveats would you put on it for other startups to look at? You know, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, it was really fascinating. We were very separate and we started out by completely breaking functional alignment. We had this different brand. We had a different tech stack for which I'll apologize to the to the current HubSpot engineering team who spent years paying down the debt that um, I personally incurred. I wrote about a quarter of a million lines of code on Sidekick myself, which was, you know, which was helpful in the early days, just trying to find that product market fit. And we moved very, very quickly, you know, building features practically while we're on the phone with customers. But boy, that's, you're really sketching in pencil in a world where ultimately, you know, you want to build things the right way in ink. So we had, you know, we had a lot of pain around kind of rewriting everything as we went. So there is a lot of pain, you know, you incur an enormous amount of debt by doing that, by breaking off and breaking this functional alignment. The first, and then over time, you know, we took each of these practices, each of these departments, and we moved back to functional alignment. The first one to move back to functional alignment was engineering because I wasn't a very good engineering manager, you know? And so in the early days I was doing the engineering which, which, as I say, had its pluses and minuses. And, you know, and then managing, we, we did a couple of small aqua hires and built a really, really cool sort of charming team of interesting characters from all over. And there were five or six of us working on this product and really cool culture. We, you know, we had the hoodies with the sidekick logo on it and all that. But being separate from the company meant that lim- the resources were limited. And, people were kind of looking at you a little bit out of the corner of their eye, as opposed to really thinking about how it fits into the core mission, you know? And so that's the challenge is that you, the benefit is you get this protection to try things, to fail, to iterate insanely quickly. We did not have, you know, the executive team evaluating our unit economics every week and every month, the way that we would in the, in the core business. And that really was great. It was a lot of fun. We moved very, very quickly. We were innovative, you know, and then, you know, we, we did align the engineering teams. 
And then we did align the product management teams. And then we aligned the marketing teams. And then we aligned the services teams. Then we aligned the sales teams. That whole process took about three years. And so Clay Christensen has great commentary on this, better commentary than I can that I can offer. There, there are a few ways to get kind of rapid innovation curves as your product model matures. And acquisition is one. A lot of companies in our position have really grown their product line through acquisition. We really haven't. We've grown the team a bit through acquisition. We've rewritten everything that we've acquired or sunset it or some combination of the two. And so we're a little bit, I would say, unique in that regard. Sort of in, in our context, the really common thing to do would be to, to grow by acquiring. And, and I think we learned enough from that skunk works startup within a startup entrepreneurial environment to get to a point where we feel like we can be as innovative on our core teams, you know, and we learned what types of protection we needed for a team and what types of protection were counterproductive. You know, so for example, not having a published goal that pins you into a certain approach that's communicated to the entire company and not being touted as a major priority actually has some some real advantages in terms of the agility of, of working with customers and pivoting and going in different directions until you find the thing to really to double down on. On the flip side, however, there's really for us nothing to be gained by not standing on the shoulders of everything that we've built in terms of management and career path and recruiting for for the product builders. So I would say it's, it's, you know, it's really worth a shot, particularly the bigger you get, it's worth doing. It has a lot of downsides. And my only advice really is be aggressive about pulling it back in to the main machine when it's really starting to work. Got it. So you're a proponent of trying it at different startups. And, you know, you mentioned as you get bigger, what, at what size or what point do you think it makes sense? I mean, obviously, if you're a four-person company, you are a startup. You don't need a startup within that startup for eight or 12 even. At what point do you think it, it makes sense? Or maybe employee number isn't the right metric. Maybe it's some other metric. I mean, it's, you know, when, when you're crossing Dunbar's number and product, you know, I think if there was some, you know, I don't want to dance around the answer too much. But yeah, I'd say around, you know, whatever it is, a couple hundred people in product you know, or however you sort of look at the geometric scale and the point at which you start to not be sitting next to everybody, it potentially can be useful. But the way that I look at any process or any kind of team decision like that or operating system level decision like that is, you know, you have lots of options. The options are fairly well documented out there, whether it's process, whether it's team structure, whether it's team ratios and culture and so forth. And you just kind of want to match those with the problems that you have as a business. Scrum, for example, is very popular. And we sort of have this reputation of HubSpot of being anti-Scrum, which you, I think overall is fair. You know, we're, we're not a Scrum shop and we don't run any one particular rigid process. We have, you know, we have the discipline that we follow and SLAs and launch points and a, a monthly demo. We have a lot of, of process actually at a very high level, but the individual teams are free to, to really find their own process. But I don't, you know, it, it's no mystery to me why a lot of companies are running Scrum when the average software company has two huge problems. One being protecting themselves from other departments in terms of thrashing priorities. And two, shipping actual working product to customers. And if you adopt this, in some sense, very sane default of Scrum, you really address those. 
in, in my view. You, you know, it's a great way to address those. We don't have those particular problems, right? Our problems are, are, our challenges are a little bit different. We have a really good relationship with marketing and the executive team and sales and so forth. And so we don't have people who are going to come over and rip headphones off of engineers and, and say, hey, do my pet feature. We've matured into a really good working relationship there. And so that level of predictability of down to the, the Trello card or the Jira task or the GitHub issue and knowing exactly when it's going to get shipped, is there's really no benefit to us in terms of that. However, we as a business take our go-to-market performance very, very seriously. And so the connection between what we're doing and what our priorities are and the output of the business is super important to us. And so, you know, geez, if you're going to do something that doesn't feed into that or has a longer term horizon, a more strategic horizon, you probably want to find a way to protect them from the rest of the business. Otherwise, you'll do, you know, you'll fall into the trap that competent managers fall into, which is, well, we have these resources, we have these goals, let's apply these resources to these goals. And those goals are typically in year. And so, you know, it's, I would say it's, it's really just an exercise of being honest with yourself about what your challenges are as a team, and then talk to people and figure out what are the available solutions and which ones actually address the problems that you're having. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that now. It seems like, you know, kicking off a startup within a startup when you're entering new markets and don't want the initial innovation to be overly constrained by unit metrics and the like, that's kind of like a good time to do that. Right. I mean, we got this free CRM strategy out of it. And I think that if we had not done something, it would have been much harder for us to bring this stuff to market in the you know, relatively gutsy way that we ended up doing it, frankly. And we would have built a few CRM SKUs and given them to sales and had sales sell them. And you know, the, the feedback cycle would have suffered early on. And you, know, you get very eager to sell things and you know, all this stuff kind of happens. And we had some protection there and that gave the company, frankly, time to look at the market, really understand the market as we learned from customers and brought that to the executive team and tried a lot of different things. The company said, boy, there's an opportunity here that maybe hadn't occurred to us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this thing that we could very easily monetize and we're going to give it away you know, and adopt a slightly, not, not slightly, actually a very significantly different go-to-market approach there. And, uh, you know, that's a core thing for us now in terms of our mission and our strategy and, and one we feel really good about. So let's talk a little bit about product management culture, right? Take me through how you approach building out a product management culture. Yeah. I mean, the reality of our culture is the best thing about it is that the teams have a true large degree of autonomy. You know, that is the the hallmark of our structure, of our culture, of our operating system. And the hardest thing about it is that the teams have a very large amount of autonomy, you know, and, and it's people like that autonomy, love it actually. And it's a huge part of the reason that we walk through the door to work on Monday morning excited and it's also the most frustrating thing, you know, as we talk to our own team about their pain points, you know, cross-team collaboration ends up being perennially, and we're getting, we're getting better at it, but for, for some time has been a big um, challenge for us. And so that's, I think that that's kind of the core of the culture. And then from there, you can expand upon it and, you know, and start to look at things like, you know, get stuff done, the GSD aspect of our culture and thinking like an owner, 
and putting customers first and, and all of our product values, which we do articulate explicitly and share with the team, share with the company. You know, these are the things that we value. We value lifting each other up. We value, as I said, acting like an owner, you know, and really taking problems into your own stead to solve, you know, when you see them. But all of those things really add up to this idea that we want to build a culture where the people who have the power to actually do things are the people who are talking to customers and we're eliminating as much kind of BS and as much red tape as possible so that we can go as quickly as possible and in the best direction. So, I mean, when you think about product principles, is that how you describe yours? You know, autonomy, customer first, get stuff done. Yeah, I think we have, I could, I could pull up the list here. We have, you know, a dozen or two dozen of these uh, product principles. The first one, the most important one is that customers come first. And that's hard, you know, that, that's a hard one to live up to. And it's a huge part of our 2019 roadmap. It's, uh, we have a bunch of planning around that theme and really putting customers first. Because, the, you know, our culture is one where, because we encourage people to think like an owner and act like an owner, because we have this type of boots on the ground mentality and bottoms up decision-making and kind of day-to-day direction, we are, you know, five, $6 billion public company that can fix a bug while we're on the phone with a customer. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. One of the questions I like to ask companies when I'm trying to understand about their product processes, you know, look here in your product, if there were a typo there, walk me through everything that you would do to fix that. You know, would you file a ticket here? Would it get planned? How does, you know, how does your build and deploy work? QA, acceptance testing, ungating and, you know, sort of feature management, all of this kind of stuff. How would you do it? And it's, you'd be surprised potentially, maybe you wouldn't, but I, I'm surprised often to see teams of three, four, five engineers that would take a week to fix a typo. And so we, we, we pass the typo test very well still to this day. And we, we are able to move incredibly quickly and the values really outline everything that's necessary around that to really do that in a successful way. So anything you'd add, I mean, product principles is a lot of the philosophy on how the best product teams work. What else would you add to that as far as your philosophy on, on how best product teams work? Well, a lot of it comes down to a lot of the questions that, that we get come down to the trade craft and the kind of career progression of product management. One really useful lens of many to kind of tackle that problem is looking at the diversity of your experience and the predictability of your results. And that applies to culture too. You know, is your culture one where people are gaining a diversity of experience and people are delivering more predictable results? And I don't mean predictable results like, uh, you know, better estimating backlogs and stuff like that. I, I mean, you know, are people learning, for example, as they go from APM to PM to, you know, leading a team of product managers, are they learning, for example, the importance of keeping design ahead of engineering and how critical the user experience process is, how, how critical it is for that to be proactive? Are they learning how to build relationships with engineering and engineering leadership? You know, do they understand how to come into the executive team context and answer questions and talk about the mission in a very transparent, non-defensive way? Those are critical to the culture and help us invest more and more around particular initiatives. 
So talk to me about, you know, you mentioned initiatives, other things. Tell me about a product problem you're really excited about today. This one is a really interesting one. I'm really interested in performance. I'm really interested in how to build a product that is globally as fast as a consumer product. You know, even being an admittedly very large, very powerful business application. Well, we have this strategy where we, you know, we want 10 million, 100 million people using this thing around the world. How do we make it treat the product as though it were a B2C consumer landing page, you know? And so this obsession around performance and alongside that, an obsession around what we call paper cuts. So the little annoying things in a product that someone may actually call support to talk about, but support isn't going to then file a bug. You know, this, this related challenge around performance, which is sort of the usability performance. And we measure both, right? We can measure median load times, we can measure system usability score, and we can measure the tickets we're getting that we think that we could have avoided with you know, a more finely tuned, a more customer-driven user experience approach. And that is really kind of the next frontier, you know, for me. I'm very excited about the features we'll build. I'm very excited about finding new markets and, and all of this more traditional PM tradecraft stuff. But the thing that I'm kind of watching, partially because I'm just really, really curious to see how it plays out. And I'm always curious about the new muscle groups that we're developing. I'm really curious about how do we become just surgically accurate with user experience and performance. I like that. <laughs> I wanted to go back to something you, you talked about early on too, and I think it fits here. You know, you talked about being passionate and you can hear your passion, right, for this new direction. But you talked about being, or I shouldn't say new direction, but for, for this endeavor, you talked early on about being passionate about customer, right, and passionate about their needs. I often see a lot when I talk to product management, especially young guys who are not passionate necessarily about the customer and the problems, but passionate about a product and a solution, maybe that hasn't even met market fit yet. So, you know, tell me a little bit about that, right? And do you see that a lot with some younger PMs where they're like, they have a product they're passionate about and they're almost trying to get customers to use it to fulfill their needs instead of building a product around, you know, a problem set. Not only do I see it, I mean, I've been guilty of it myself. Absolutely. You know, we've built a couple of things that on a certain leadership level, we just thought were going to be, we thought were going to be big hit products and they just weren't solving a problem in a way that was really intuitive. You know, it's like, here's this super cool technology. Why don't customers understand it? It's like, well, if they don't understand it, then it's not that cool. And what's possible with it or, or the technology behind it can be cool, but you really have to be able to throw in the towel and, and move on when something isn't finding fit. I heard a great thing from some folks at a very well-known company whom we ask for advice a lot, which is give your product teams problems and not products, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I, I heard like, Product managers should fall in love with the problem, not with the product. There was a time when we saw some really interesting things happening in the market and started kind of chasing use cases, chasing, you know, kind of applications of technology based on a perception of their fit in the market. And we found nothing there. And it was one of those moments where it's, 
the one-on-one with the product manager is you have to turn around, walk out of this meeting and go tell your tech lead, we're shutting this whole thing down. You know, it was, it was one of those moments of which I've, I've had in my career, but you know, that I can count on one hand where it's that stark of, we gave it the college try and this ain't the thing. And later on, I found that those companies that we thought were really interesting in how they were taking this stuff to market were watching what we were doing and were pivoting their companies to do what we were doing, which is just fascinating, you know? And so you just really need to stay customer driven and, you know, root cause driven and problem driven and be willing to solve things in different ways. I'll say one more thing about that, which is if you ask a product manager or an engineer, (laughs) would you rather work on, you know, which we're able to do at HubSpot. We have products that haven't been built and we have products that are very mature and have hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. You know, where, where do you fit along that spectrum? Almost everybody says they want to work on the new stuff. And it is, in my experience, by far the most stressful, hardest on um, an emotional, (laughs) emotional level and sort of an energy level to work on new stuff because you are constantly hitting the delete button. You are constantly having to face the reality that, that you were wrong. You know, it's just the math on it. It's just the reality of bringing something from zero to one. It's very, very painful. We found that you need pretty experienced people to do the new products, particularly, not always, not always. And we've had new products with new product developers and, and had it work out. But uh, it is really an emotional battle as much as it's a, um, a technical or a design battle. So we were just talking about customers, right? So that brings me to this next area. You know, in the product management community, we often hear PMs need to be conducting interviews with customers all the time, right? All the time is a very vague term. You know, how how often do you conduct customer interviews and what's the best way you think to conduct them? Yeah, well, we, we conduct them constantly. And every once in a while, someone will say to me, do we really talk to customers? And, uh, you know, so I would say once or twice a year, I go look at, product team's calendars <laughs> just to make sure that we are. And we are. We spend an enormous amount of time talking to customers. And it comes through a, a variety of different flavors. I don't think we have it figured out. I don't know if anybody really does. We've learned that it's very valuable. We've learned that really choosing who to talk to based on the future direction of the product is really important. So that may sound obvious, but it means things like that beta group that wants all the new features. Well, you actually don't want to be doing a lot of validative usability testing and a lot of kind of strategic testing, early stage discovery testing in the user experience process with those folks because they have a certain relationship with that process. You know, they, they're so eager to be part of that process. They want to impress you. They want to be right. They, you know, it's this different kind of context. And the people you really want on the phone are the people that you can't get on the phone. You know, you want the people who aren't going to take half an hour and talk to a product manager because those are the people who are going to try to use your thing and bail. You know, the people who are are most ready to talk to you are often the people who are going to sit there and try your new product for an hour, call support two times, call their account manager, read all the product marketing, read all the documentation and are dedicated to, to making it work because that's kind of as I say, their relationship to the product. And, you know, if you're trying to move activation, you're trying to move retention, you're trying to move sales productivity, you're trying to move customer retention, whatever it is, by definition, you know, you don't really want to be talking to those people. That's one thing we've learned. So how do you, how do you reach those people that don't want to be talking to you? Yeah, I, I think it's hard. Frankly, since you mentioned that, I'll, I'll share transparently. One of the biggest challenges that we have 
and this sounds silly, but one of the biggest challenges we have with talking to customers and doing the deep kind of user research we want to do is the logistics of it. You know, finding those people, connecting with them, getting them to actually show up to the meetings. And so we, you know, we do Amazon gift cards and we do all that kind of stuff and make a big investment in getting those people on, on the phone. But it's, it is persistence. It's casting an appropriately wide net and also just targeting the folks that you really want. You know, so our PMs will want to validate something or, or discover something before building a product. By the way, that's another thing we've learned is don't just build something and then do usability testing you know, move that user research process with dedicated user research professionals early. And, and it's the same thing we learned with design. Don't build a product and then give it to a designer to make it pretty. You know, if you do that, you have designers who are just trying to get these tickets off their desk, as opposed to a designer who's physically in the office with a customer who has said they have a certain problem, you know, thinking like a designer and thinking like a real owner as part of our culture in terms of what the, what the problem space is and what the solution should be. So that's another key one is to do the customer discovery early on. But, you know, getting folks on the phone is, is very tough. Segmenting down active users, talking to, one of the best things you can do is talk to survey people who uh, abandon your product. You know, that's a big thing that we do is we'll do a whole report on a cohort of folks who came in and tried to use the product, used it for a couple of weeks and then bailed, particularly with free products. You know, you really want to understand what it was. Often it's something as simple as feature set or product quality or, you know, the things that you run into most commonly when you're working on a brand new product. And sometimes there are things that really surprise you. You don't support my email client or, you know, whatever else it is. And those things would have gone undiscovered because they're, they're not the people who are writing in and you know, voting on idea forums and jumping into the community and sort of making their voice heard. It's the silent kind of majority that you're going after. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You, you mentioned connecting with people. One of the things I've done to connect with people that I think is really cool is do it in app. Like if you want to get feedback on X feature, look at people that are using X feature and we actually have messages pop up. We see you've been using this a lot our PM, blah, 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 would love to, you know, get feedback from you directly. Here's the calendarly link, right? And actually let people right there self-select to give feedback. It's, it's been very effective. I, I, I doubt it gets much better than that, you know, and then also catching them when you do that, you're catching them close to that moment of confusion or moment of context. You know, another idea would be to do that same thing and, and instrument that on knowledge docs. So if you're getting, you can connect the dots there, right? In a really interesting way where you have people who are struggling at a certain stage to complete a job to be done, you know, or a user story, whatever, however you think about it. And they typically are bailing or looking at this doc or, you know, they spend a certain amount of time on this page without doing anything. And being able to kind of dial that in and talk to those people, particularly when they're close to that moment and have that context is super, super valuable. Yeah, I think if, if you have that data and the ability to get them right when they're doing something and even be able to segment it further saying, oh, I know this person is, you know, an admin user who's using this, right? And that's the people we want to reach. I think that's really cool. The other thing you mentioned that, that I wanted to dig back into is, you know, you talked a little bit about, and I'll just paraphrase it, but prototyping to learn, right? Get involved in that early in the process and not later where it's more like A-B testing, but you're really prototyping to learn, right? By similar to design, get that experiment out in front of people before it's big. Is that accurate? 
hugely accurate. You know, another seemingly peculiar thing about our product culture is that we don't do, we say we don't do specs. And while we don't, we don't do, you know, our product managers don't ever open Microsoft Word and write out a ISO, whatever it is, compliant product specification. We don't do any of that. However, in the spirit of intellectual honesty, we do very high fidelity, clickable working mockups. And uh, our teams have, I think, very cluefully learned that investing in those is a great use of time and energy, particularly with customers on the phone, because it's still so malleable. And there's so much that you can do these days with a variety of tools. There's so much that you can do in terms of moving from however you're implementing your design language and and sort of building your actual production UI mockups and taking that extra step to share them in an interactive format and see if people are able to, to actually complete tasks is just super, super valuable. I'll tell you, it's very similar to music. I mean, this is another one of those places where the, the parallel is huge. Every great artist, I'm, I'm listening through right now the Tom Petty box set and the demos on there. You know, he has his kind of bedroom demos on there. You can tell from a demo whether a song is really going to work or not. And before you go into the studio and hire all of these people and, you know, spend all of this money producing a song, producing a record, you really want to make sure that the core of it is speaking to someone. And and that I think is extremely similar. And this investment in high enough fidelity mock-ups to prove something out is really, really important. And it seems to me every creative process that I can think of. Yeah. And those mock-ups, those prototypes, they're a lot cheaper, obviously, than rolling out a product without getting that, right? Or rolling out a beta. Oh, my goodness. I'm, as I say, I'm fascinated by how stuff gets made. I want to learn more about architecture, for example. But even just from the cheap seats, you can see that that world is totally different in a day and age when you can not just draw something, not just create blueprints, but do a full CAD high fidelity rendered version of this thing you want to build and then go walk around inside it and ask people what they think and, you know, what's the impact and what's the, you know, and how do the materials interact with the elements and all this kind of stuff. And I think that all of these creative professions that we're in share that in common, that technology really needs to be looked to early in the process at a fairly high fidelity level to just try things out. There's just no excuse. Whereas in the past, for all of these things, whether it was software or music architecture, you know, anything else, you used to have to just commit to these decisions much earlier and live with the consequences. Yeah, I I love that. And in fact, it's funny, I, I have a similar interest in understanding more about the architecture side of things, right? That business, so to speak. I have a lot of interest in that. I actually played with when I was laying out my basement. I found a tool that would let you like put furniture in and actually feel like you're walking through it, right? So I'm, I I'm literally through. doing that right now I, for the basement. Literally doing oh, the same thing. Yeah, and it was the greatest like, thing, greatest yeah. experience. The and I'm, I'm blowing through just trying to figure out how to do it. And I don't know the workflow and I don't know the tools and the keyboard shortcuts and it's totally defeating, but also very fun. Yeah. Yeah, I totally loved it. I, I greatly enjoyed that process. It was a blast. And I went through like three different designs before I settled on like a layout because I had, in essence, a big open space for a basement. So it was, it was walls and everything. And that worked out and you had to, what was it like learning the software? What did you use? What software did you use? 
you know, I'll have to look up the software. I'll send it to you offline here, but uh, I'll have to to plug it into the podcast too. It was an old version of a software in the new version. I don't like nearly as much, but it was on my iPad. I did it all on my iPad. No kidding. Oh, that's cool. I'll share that with you and we'll we'll have to add it into the notes on this podcast so that if people are interested, they can check it out. But I found that, you know, the old version was a lot easier to use. Or maybe because I didn't want to pay a super premium, whatever, for the new version. I forget what it was. But yeah. We had even just like a little, uh, you know, a little set of cubbies and hooks put in by our door. And the the gentleman who came in to do the work had showed us a high fidelity mock-up of exactly what it was going to look like just by taking a few measurements and, you know, and taking a photo. And this was a small job and he was able to show us like exactly what it was going to look like. And I was, I was blown away by that. I hadn't seen that before. It's yeah, pretty- totally, totally awesome. So one of the things, going back to something else you said hinted at really early on, is I think you guys deploy a lot. I would guess probably continuous deployment, right? How do you ship a lot without disturbing customers? Now, this has come up a lot when I speak at different conferences. Questions I often get is like, okay, if we're rolling out things quickly, how do we educate customers? How do we do this in a way that doesn't disturb their established workflows? Boy, it's hard. I Just this morning... I'm coming into my office here to have this conversation with you, having had coffee with a friend of mine who was complaining about the parking app that we use around Cambridge and Somerville to pay for your meter. And they had done an update to the app. And my friend was so frustrated. This has like ruined his day that they changed the app a whole bunch. And to his mind, like what on earth was wrong with this thing before? And then on the flip side, you have customer feedback. When you're moving this quickly, you have piles of customer feedback that say, one of the reasons we love you is that you act on our feedback. You listen to us. You have accountability for our ideas and where they are in your roadmap and your process. And I see things come to life. And we had a customer come to our company meeting and and her comment was, it's getting to the point now where before she writes something to the ideas form, she waits a couple of weeks and nine times out of 10, it just shows up without her having to write in. And so that's an amazing, powerful, delightful experience. It's very hard for competitive apps to compete with that. Frankly, I would not want to compete with HubSpot because of that, because of that ability to move extremely, extremely quickly. On the other hand, though, you have that downside. You have the, you know, moving people's cheese as they say, and it's extremely hard for people. So it's a huge balance, a huge, huge balance. It's very hard to know whether you've struck that balance because you always get feedback on both sides of it. It's very difficult to know whether you should slow down or speed up and kind of dial that in. In the short term, you know, for us, we'll see NPS, we'll see some of these other indicators move in a positive direction when we slow down. But of course, if you slowed down and just stayed forever, then eventually everybody would leave. And so how do you kind of find that balance? Well, there are, there are tools, you know, there are techniques here. I mean, the first thing to realize is going to production 400 times a day does not mean making 400 changes that, are, that affect customers. The vast majority of that has no visible impact on the product whatsoever and is, you know, behind the scenes bug fixing and, and paying off technical debt, and, you know, refactoring code and doing operational stuff. For the customer facing stuff, just because you go to production doesn't mean that you have to go to production for everybody. And that's really the critical aspect there is giving the product teams control to launch something to one customer. 
And one of the things that we've found is that you can get most of the value of the feedback with just, you know, five or 10 customers that you show something to who are really going to give you the honest feedback, kind of like we were talking about before. And so you don't necessarily need to take a change and kind of paper cut it to the max, rolling it out in certain ways. And then there are other times when the answer is just patience. So we had to do what I would imagine is the scariest thing, the single scariest thing to do at HubSpot in the product, single scariest thing is to completely change the navigation. Yeah, I was going to mention that is, is, you know, a lot of the feature ads are things that are like, oh, there's now this column you can sort by, that's okay. Or you can now sort a column where you couldn't before. All that stuff's relatively easy for customers to adopt, but user interface in particular has to be the big thing that you have to be concerned about, like changing the way their flow, where things are. Yeah, you basically, you're totally right. I mean, when you add power and you're not moving things, subtracting things, killing things, redesigning things, when you're just adding power to the system, what we see is there is a cost to it in terms of ease of use. You know, and so when we do product NPS, you're going to see the top, we look at the top reasons people are promoters and the top reasons people are detractors. And the two top reasons people are promoters are the same as the top two reasons people are detractors. And that is ease of use and breadth of functionality. And what happens over time is as you tackle one, you take a hit on the other. And so as you tackle feature breadth, you take a hit on usability. And there are things you can do there and hide things behind sort of progressive disclosure patterns. And, you know, there, there are books, really great books written about this in the UX field. There are things that you can do, but that's the general tension. Where it gets really hard is when you start changing, manipulating what we think of as core transactional flows. Like, how do I get to send an email? How do I get to this report that I need to show my boss? And so changing the navigation is, you know, the apex of that nervousness for us. And we've, we found ourselves probably two years ago at a point where we said, we've had this navigation with its particular information architecture and we need to completely change it, you know? And that's one where it, it hits my desk that we're going to do that. And I'm like, oh boy, you know? And Brian, our CEO finds out about it and he says, oh boy, you know, don't mess this one up guys. And so that's not something you're going to do lightly. You know, we did over a year of research. We did the better part of a hundred detailed customer calls. We did everything you can imagine, anything in Peter Morville's Polar Bear book on information architecture, card sorting and the different types of card sorting and just everything until we had an approach that we were ready to commit to. And then we took another year building it and rolling it out. We just completed it. And we, we kudos to the team who did it we completed that rollout to all of our 50,000 plus customers and all the free users with basically no support tickets. I mean, that's awesome. And so that kind of change management, in addition to being patient, you know, you have to be very, very thoughtful about essentially the thing we've learned is like everything else in life, it's about power and about control. And if things are happening to people that feel as though they're out of their control and they feel powerless, it's one of the worst feelings that you can have as a human, you know, so here we are and we're shipping and we look at a design and we think it's good and we can take it to production and we can give it to these people and those people. And, and we have the power to do that. And when we do that and people feel like it's happening to them, 
it's a you know the hormones that 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 happen to that person sitting on the other end of the software. I mean, it can ruin someone's day, as I learned this morning with my friend having coffee. I mean, it's ruined his day, and it can be actually very difficult to recover from emotionally. So it's a huge, huge deal. But you can give people the control. You can show people that there is a new navigation and allow them to opt into it. You can give them the control to decide who at their company has that navigation. When people have that navigation change for them, you can show the face and the name of the person who decided to change it for them in a way to contact them. You know, and it's this type of recourse, this type of control and just giving it back to people, even though ultimately we're changing the nav. You know, I mean, we have to do that. We have code of this old nav. That code needs to go away. We need to get 100% of people on this new nav. It's super, super scary. We can go slow. But the really, really critical thing is the human experience and making sure that people feel that they still have control. Yeah. Any other tips on educating those users about it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that there are amazing tools out there now where bringing people through tours, allowing people to give feedback in real time when there are changes, you know, in-app notifications. There's great stuff out there, Pendo included. And using something like that is, I mean, it's really foolish not to at this point. Users expect it. They're very used to it. They're very accustomed to it. You need to be careful not to overuse it. And you need to be thoughtful about the size of your changes and when it's really appropriate to ask for feedback and and be targeted, like you're saying, you know, and really use targeting and segmentation to your advantage as you roll things out. But it's a, a massive part of what we rely on. And, you know, every modern SaaS shop, to say the least, is relying on those kinds of tools. I like it. One, one thing you talked a lot about in your last couple of answers was NPS. So tell me a little bit about that. What are your thoughts on NPS? NPS, man, I mean, it's... Whew. It's the best thing and the worst thing about my life Uh, in a lot of ways. It's really valuable, really humbling. It does tie to business outcomes and is very, very hard to move at the same time. You have headwinds, tailwinds. It's just the final frontier, I think, in product development is wrapping your arms around NPS and being able to take action on it. We have uh, Jill Ward has joined our board at HubSpot. She is, in addition to being just brilliant and the coolest, nicest person I think I've ever worked with. I mean, she's just awesome. I mean, I'm not just trying to shine her shoes. I think anybody who's who's worked with her is, is going to be nodding their head off at this point in the episode, but she's the best. And one of the big breakthroughs as she was training us on everything she learned relying on NPS at Intuit which is, you know, a famous story. You hear about NPS and software and you hear about Intuit and everything that she and that crew kind of pioneered. This was the Yoda moment for me. She said, NPS gives you the who and not the what. And that's really fascinating, you know? And so the way that that kind of breaks down is open-ended input is really valuable. Yes, it is. But understanding the segments that are happy in the segments that are unhappy. And that's important too, is understand why people are promoters. You know, what got them there? Don't just look at the holes you got to dig out of, but look at your wins and understand why people are loving your product and understand the classes of people that are unhappy with your product. And so that's for us, really our NPS process is, okay, well, we know that 
marketers who were originally involved in all of the sales process for HubSpot are incredibly happy with HubSpot for very long periods of time at very, very high rates. And then some of these other types of users that are very specific are very worth talking to because we have, you know, we have work to do there. And it's the obvious stuff, you know, newer products are, are lower NPS, more mature ones are, are typically higher NPS, but it's a battle. But one of the other things that we've done is just started to look at the NPS responses in real time. And so we have across our company, close to a thousand people who are in a Slack channel together and we get every NPS response in real time. And it is. Yeah, we do the exact same thing with Slack. Right. It's great. You see them, you can respond to them, you can act on that immediately. It's awesome. It's unbelievable, you know? And so we, and again, it's not just the what, it's the who. And so it's really important to be able to see, you know, user attributes. And, you know, we put the flags in there from their country and we have all these kind of cool bells and whistles on any response. You just click into it and you see all of this context, what products they have and when they bought what and all this kind of stuff and who the account manager is and whether they want to hear from us about their feedback. And as you say, you can take action on it right there. And it's been very, very interesting and transformative and taken the old process, which was do NPS quarterly, do a bunch of analysis, build a deck, send the deck out to the company, which, which is good and worth doing. And everybody should do that. You know, every company should do that. I can't think of a context in which you shouldn't be doing that. But moving to a world where the better part of the company, you know, or a huge slice of the company at least is together reading this stuff in real time and just developing a shared intuition for what the challenges are and what's working. Talk about culture, man. I mean, having a customer first culture where people are, and, and we discuss, right? We have threads there. And those threads are account managers, they're salespeople, they're product managers principally. And people being able to discuss things and research it and come back. Oh, here's the inside story on, on you know, this person. I talked to them. This is what we learned. And this is why they were frustrated with X, Y, and Z. And then thousand people being able to see that in real time. I have to say, it's actually fun. You know, when I see that I have unread NPS things in Slack, it's, uh, you know, you're always kind of curious what you're going to see. But, and it's humbling because you'll get the three tens in a row and then three zeros in a row and, and all these funny things. And we, we celebrate when we have a string of tens in a row. You know, we had, we broke the record the other day. We had eight or nine tens in a row and that's always fun. But we tend to focus, tend to focus on the detractors. Yeah, I, I love the, the Slack NPS integration. The other thing which I'm passionate about these days that I love is being able to look at promoters and directors by usage. So looking at and saying like, what, are, what parts of my product are my promoters using versus my detractors? And then slicing that by segment, like, oh, show me these types of users. And there's really cool things you can do with data. It's awesome. So that's been my newest like obsession. <laughs> well, in our RPMs along those lines, RPMs are insatiable with their thirst for, you know, give me NPS on just my app, give me NPS on just this feature. And, you know, at a certain point you run out of data <laughs> and there's only a certain level of granularity that you can get to, but you can tell that it's working in the culture because people are pulling, right? We used to have to push this data to people. And when you give it to folks in a way that's really consumable, and I would say bordering on fun, it's not quite fun, but it's as close to fun as it gets for the humblingness of, of that kind of feedback when you're asking for it. You know, when you see people just always wanting more then you know, you're onto something. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I love how you guys look at NPSV, you know, categories like ease of use and breadth of functionality. I highly suggest other people do the same kind of stuff, like slice and dice that NPS data by all kinds of different things. And you can learn a lot, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what other advice would you give PMs regarding measuring product impact beyond, you know, NPS? Boy, be patient. I mean, that's the first one. As I say, I mean, so much of this trade is ultimately, it's a battle with ourselves in a certain sense. You know, it's, I think the biggest problems that I see PMs having is just how hard it is to develop confidence, you know, and how to develop a sense of confidence that is still open and humble because essentially the job is to, as far as we're concerned and I'm concerned, the job is to keep creative makers, in this case, technical, you know, creative makers, engineers excited and to keep them excited because they feel as though their work is directly connected to some sort of human impact. I mean, that's the great thing about working with engineers is that they're primarily motivated by solving real problems. That's the biggest thing. I mean, it's not about another dollar. It's not about all of these other kind of extrinsic rewards, you know, especially great engineers. They want to be around other great engineers. They want to feel like they're solving problems that really, really matter. And that's really our job. And with all that said, ultimately, as, as product folks, we have to gamble. We have to try things. There's only so much we can validate an idea before we really take it into the wild. And, you know, that's, that's my advice for product folks is be somewhere where the folks are going to believe in you. Make sure that you have the data that you need in real time. Make sure you're able to have conversations with customers in real time and give yourself some time. You won't know if you're a good product manager for quite some time, for better or worse. So talk to me about trends in the future. What do you see in the next few years that will affect the craft of product management? It's a great question. We have a product manager who's come up through the ranks pretty quickly, came from support and was working on just the nature of how he joined the team. He was working on a lot of backend systems. And I remember I used to have one-on-ones with him and he would say, well, I'm just worried that not building UI and building customer facing stuff is going to stunt my career growth potentially. And I said, boy, that's a fascinating topic, isn't it? If you keep doing what you're doing and you do it as well as we think you can do it, we cannot lose you, you know? And that person ended up moving more and more into the back end and into machine learning and artificial intelligence and data science and working with all of the interdisciplinary experts and subject matter experts that are required to build a machine learning algorithm, you know, an an AI brain that really does something for customers. And now he knows more about that than any other PM on the team by a mile. So I think that that's very interesting. You know, we think of a product manager, we have a picture in our head of a product manager. And I think that picture will become only increasingly diverse over time. You need people who are great at early stage products. You know, there's a great article about the pioneer, the settler, and the town planner. You know, you need pioneers, you need settlers, you need town planners. I also think that you need folks who are very, very keen and sharp on the user experience side. And then folks who are very, very sharp on the complex backend and increasingly algorithmic complexity side as well. So I I think the trend there is going to be specialization. I think we're going to see more and more folks who specialize, people who have a lot of experience building mobile apps, for example. It's just a, a different context. It's not as though you can take someone who builds web SaaS stuff 
and drop them into the iOS environment because it's, it's just a very different context, right? Of how you build and how you take customer feedback and everything like that. So I, I think that's the big trend that we'll see is specialization. I think the body of knowledge will grow too. And people will come in with some of the trade craft a little bit more familiar to them than perhaps in the last five years where people are coming in and they've really, it's, it's, it's still pretty improvisational. So let's wrap this uh, podcast up with two questions, you know, specific to you. And the first one is, what's your favorite product? Uh, my favorite product, man, right now it might be reverb.com. If, if I, if I can't say a HubSpot product, I'm assuming I can't. Okay. Oh, a HubSpot product, HubSpot CRM. You know, HubSpot CRM is my favorite product. I just think it's, it's the coolest, you know, I mean, no one has done, this is something every business needs and no one has done the Gmail equivalent for CRM. You know, the thing that is free, that really has high, high product limits to it, that is built so that people will grow up using it and then someday request using it at work when there's a gap or there's a startup or there's a new opportunity to adopt technology. And that product just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. At this point in my life, all my friends are using it, you know, which has uh, its positives and negatives. I get feature requests over text all the time now from people I went to high school with and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, outside of HubSpot, my favorite products are really largely around music and around music production. I think Ableton is a really strong product. And I also am very impressed with Logic. So Apple made this huge investment in their pro audio tool logic and have done a very similar thing in terms of democratizing that. So now if you go buy logic pro X, you know, it's $200 and it has what would have been tens of thousands of dollars worth of software in it, you know, even five years ago, 10 years ago. So I think that that's a really, really interesting product that's opinionated that has made a lot of decisions that has progressive disclosure and, you know, power user feature sets that you can find very easily, but the, the casual user never has to run into. I think they've done a lot of really nice things there. Awesome. So for a final question, three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. Impatient, loyal, and curious. Love it. Well, thanks for your time. Greatly enjoyed this chat. Thanks, Eric. Best of luck with everything. We really look up to you guys. And it's, uh, it's been nice on a personal level. It's been nice to get to know you uh, these last weeks. Absolutely. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.